it's hot, you can't do a lot because you're so close to each other. And so sometimes it's easy just to kind of, you know, and it requires a little intentionality on our part to really engage the Lord. If you believe Jesus is risen from the dead, then that means he's alive. And it's not like, y'all remember the Muppets, those two old guys that used to sit up in the balcony? That's not what he's doing. He's not up there just kind of looking at what's going on down here, critiquing us, good or bad. What he's doing and what he wants to do is, is he's saying, Jesus, I'm the head of this body and you guys are gathered and I want to meet with you as the head of this body. I'm the chief shepherd and you guys are the sheep and there are places I want to lead you today. And so all of that, you might have been like, what is he, why does he keep, what is he talking about, the airplane's not getting off the ground? Don't worry about that. Our desire as leadership is to do our best to create some type of environment where we collectively and you individually can encounter the Lord. And there are times where that seems pretty easy and there are times where it seems pretty difficult. And the times where it seems pretty difficult, the solution, at least in my world, is to push harder and to say, well, let's be more intentional about trying to connect with the Lord. And it's not about trying to stir anything up or make anything happen. It's just saying, I know the heart of God and it doesn't change and it is I want to meet with you guys and there are things I want to do in your life and I'm including my, myself in that and so if that's his heart and we're we're there's some resistance there it's not from his end and so we want to make sure that we're doing our best to engage so I don't want you to ever feel guilty you can if after five minutes you just want to sit down then sit down if you want to sing in Chinese you can sing in Chinese I don't care about any you don't have to raise your hands you can be quiet the whole time. That, none of that stuff matters to me at all. The only thing that matters to me is, did you encounter the Lord today? Because He wants to meet with you. There are things that He wants to do in your... If you're here, there are things He wants to do in your life. And that's my own... If the answer to that is yes, then I don't care what you do during worship. And if the answer is no, I still don't care what you did during worship. What I care about is why not? And that's, that's kind of where all of that was coming from. So anyway, thank you all for bearing with us and really pushing in. I felt like we definitely ended better than we began. Um, I actually think, I was thinking about this today, I think this is our one-year anniversary, which if I had thought about that before, we would have, you know, had streamers or something, but we don't. But I think this is our uh, one year that we've been in this building, right? I think it was the beginning of August. Does anybody remember that? Nobody else remembers. If it's very memorable first service, let me uh, tell you that. Uh, <laughs> Penny, this is Penny Harrison. She's our children's pastor. She has one thing that she would like, or a couple of things she'd like to share, and then um, we'll get back into the message. Use that one. Are we going to ring? Okay. Well, I kind of, when I came in, I was standing over there, and um, I'll say that I left preschool, we were doing worship in preschool, and our songs are much different doing lots of hand motions and, you know, thanking the Lord for making me and the monkeys thank the Lord and the alligators thank the Lord and all that. And so when I stepped in, I thought, okay, how am I going to get up and talk about this and not kind of interrupt the flow of what's going on? Now I'm a notorious crier when I talk about kids. And I haven't done it in a while, but I've got my tissue just in case. So just bear with me if I kind of get a little, because I did get choked up back there worshiping because your kids, even though they're doing it differently, we're worshiping at the same time. And the way their little hearts worship the Lord is very different, but they are still encountering the Lord. And when Bo was praying and he was praying for us to just to, to know the Lord is
of her, of the love of our soul, the most to truly love him and have life. That's what I want for the kids. I know the parents in here, that's what they want for their kids. Above anything else, above if they're a good soccer player, if they play the piano or they do ballet or they go to a good college one day, what they really, really want is kids who love the Lord with all their hearts. Um, that's my passion. That is my passion for this ministry, and that is my passion for children in general. I want to see kids come into this church who have never encountered the Lord before. That is my desire, to see kids come to know the Lord for the very first time when we walk in this building. And I've, I've told David before, I am, I love kids, and I'm a pretty good teacher to kids, and I can minister to kids, and I can love on kids. My weakness is asking for help. And I've really kind of thought about that, and why is that a weakness of mine? I think part of it is a little prideful. I'm one of those that thinks I can, I can do it. You know, I can do it by myself. Another thing, I think it's a little selfish. Because I, if I could spread myself thin enough to be in every room on Sunday and do everything, I would do it. And I'm not just saying that to be cute or whatever. I mean that. I, I don't, it's almost like I don't want to share the kids. But reality is that for children's ministry to be really successful and for those children that we want to see come in here and for the children we already have here to see them grow in the knowledge and love of the Lord, it takes more than one person. It takes a lot of people, actually. It takes people who are not in those rooms on Sundays who are praying for our children and for their parents, and for those of us who minister to the children. It takes hands to be in there every Sunday. Going to two services is going to take more hands. Um, and like I said, it's not my strength to ask for help, but that's what I'm going to do today. Um, when we go to two services, we're going to need two adults in the nursery at both services every Sunday. We're going to need Based on our numbers right now, this is if we didn't keep growing, which we pray we do. But based on our numbers right now, we need two adults or an adult and an older teen in the preschool room and the elementary room at both hours every Sunday. Now, this is the thing that I want to say about signing up to help with kids. I don't want to just fill the spot. I know that that's not what any of us are the parents or any of you as this church body want for our kids. We don't just want somebody in there as a warm body. Because that's not what our kids deserve. Our kids need to be ministered to. And let me say this. If God calls you to children's ministry, it is a blessing beyond what you could ever imagine. I sat in church when it was Wesleyan Fellowship way back before it was Riverstone. One Sunday, and somebody said something about kids, and I went, huh. Now, I was already a teacher, never thought about doing children's ministry. I walked over there and said, I think I'm supposed to help y'all. And I've been doing it ever since. Because it has brought so much joy and so much blessing to my life. It is, and God has continued to allow me to do it. So, before I had some people who heard this last week and they signed up, and because they knew they're supposed to do it. If you leave here today and go, I know I'm supposed to help with children. I don't know, maybe you don't know where. Just know, I feel like I'm supposed to do something. You can put your name on this paper. It'll be out in the hall with what area you like. If you like the babies, if you like the preschool, if you like the elementary. And just contact information. 
and I'll call you and we'll talk about what you want to do. If you leave here today going, hmm, I'm not sure, pray about it. Pray about it. And if you leave here going, well, I know she wasn't talking to me because I've never taught kids. Mm-hmm. I don't like to sit on the floor. <laughs> I really don't know what I'm doing. Let me just say this. Somebody told me a long time ago that God doesn't always call the equipped, but he equips those that he calls. So if you feel the call, he will give you everything you need to do it. So all that to say, pray about it. If you know you're supposed to lead our children or help with the children, sign up. If you don't think you are, I still encourage you to pray. Pray for parents, pray for those of us who minister to kids, and pray for our children. They deserve that. And we want them to be lovers of the Lord. So, thank you. Thanks. Penny said we're uh, we're looking to go to two services. They'll be at 9:30 and 11:15. Uh, we're not sure when we're going to do that. And one of the things we're waiting on is to really get enough help that we can pull uh, two services off without killing anybody. So um, there are those connect cards Brandon mentioned earlier. If you're interested in helping with the kids, you can just write your name on the card and kids or whatever, and we'll Penny will contact you. Um, Brandon also mentioned the, the Alpha Lunch next week. If you're interested in coming to that, if you just, on one of those cards, just write Alpha Lunch on the back so we know how many people to uh, get food for. That would be wonderful. We also have these uh, brochures for Alpha. I think, um, Shane, I think you're sitting on it, actually. <laughs> Sorry. It's a little postcard. They're out front on the information table. You can grab them on your way out. It explains what Alpha is. It's a good thing to hand to people if you're trying to invite them to Alpha. It has all the information on the back. Real easy, um, non-threatening deal. So uh, if y'all would keep that in mind. All right, here's Ruth. I'm going to read the entire book of Ruth. So y'all get your strap up here on. Y'all aren't excited about me reading the whole book of Ruth, are you? It's only four chapters. And I'm figuring that he can tell the story better than I can. A little background, Ruth was set during the time of Judges. Uh, Moses and his generation uh, led the Israelites out of Egypt and into the wilderness. They wandered for 40 years. The only two people, only two adults that made it through that wandering were Joshua and Caleb. Everybody else died in the wilderness. You can read about that group of people in Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. All four of those books are about Moses and his generation. When Moses dies, Joshua takes over. And uh, Joshua and the next generation, so these are like Moses and his kids' kids. Um, Moses and his guys' kids. So Joshua and his generation leave the wilderness and they enter into the promised land, which is called Canaan. Uh, They're the ones that march around the city of Jericho and the walls come down, all that stuff. They enter into the land and they begin to establish Israel as a nation. They do a lot of fighting. You can read about them in Joshua. The next generation you can read about in Judges. This is... um, all of the children of Joshua's generation. Uh, the best phrase used to describe them in Judges throughout is they did what they saw fit. Everyone did what uh, he saw was fit in his own eyes. It was a terrible time in Israel's history. They had this cycle where they would um, rebel against God. He would give them over to foreign oppressors who would oppress them for some period of years. The guys would kind of wake up. They would repent. They would ask God to deliver them. God would raise up a judge. Don't think of a guy with a robe and a hammer. It's more like a leader 
God would raise up a judge who would deliver them from whoever was oppressing them, and they would live in kind of peace and security as long as that judge was alive. And once that judge died, they go right back into the same cycle, and it repeats for hundreds of years. Israel sins repeatedly, walks away from the Lord, worships foreign gods. He punishes them. He's judging them, trying to get them to repent. At some point they do. He raises up someone to deliver them. Repeat cycle. Gideon, you've heard of Gideon. He was one of the judges. Samson, many of you have heard of him. He was a judge. So all of that is in the book of Judges. And Ruth is set during that time. Most people think during the time of Gideon. Um, if you read Gideon, or Judges 6 through 8 is a story of Gideon. In the beginning of that, it talks about a famine throughout Israel. And, and folks say, well, that's probably... Um, about when this book was set. So that's kind of your context. Let me say one other thing uh, before I read the book. Uh, There's a lot about harvesting in here. Let me give you the brief city boy version of harvesting. Uh, There was grain, there was the barley harvest, so the men usually would go through the fields with a sickle, a hand sickle, and they would cut the grain down. And then the women would come behind them and gather these stalks into sheaves, like into bundles. And then what was left, it was called gleaning. Uh, there would be another group that would come behind the women after they had bound the sheaves and they gleaned the fields. That is, they got everything that was left over. And God explicitly says in Leviticus that you leave the gleanings for the poor. If it's, if it's my field, I don't glean it. I, that's against the rules. The, the poor in my area are allowed to come in behind my servant women who are bundled this grain in sheaves. They come through and they glean. That was how God provided one of the ways God provided for the poor. So that was the third stage, gleaning. The fourth stage, they took these sheaves, they took them to this place called a threshing floor. Uh, You'll read about that, or you'll hear about that. And they would thresh the grain, which is they'd lay it out, and cows would walk on it to kind of break it up. And then they would winnow it, where they would throw the grain up into the air, and the wind blew away the chaff and the straw, and the grain fell to the ground. Then they would sift it when these kind of round sifters, and they would shake, 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 until all of the stuff, all the chaff fell off the grain. And then they would, all you have left at that point is the, is the grain, the kernels of grain, and it would be um, bagged up and either stored or sold. So that's harvesting in a nutshell. Those of you who actually know something about agriculture can forgive me for whatever I said that was not right. Here's Ruth. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man from Bethlehem and Judah, together with his wife and two sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab. Now, Moab was one of Israel's. They, they were kind of like an enemy, but not fully. Uh, you weren't, it was okay to marry someone who was a, from Moab, but your children couldn't come into the Lord's temple for ten generations. So, that's, but that's better than never. So, that's kind of where they are on the, on the food chain there. The man's name was Elimelech. His wife's name, Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem, Judah. And they went to Moab and lived there. Now Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left with her two sons. They married Moabite women, which again was okay, one named Orpah and the other Ruth. After they'd lived there about ten years, both Malon and Kilian also died, and Naomi was left without her two sons and her husband. When she heard in Moab that the Lord had come to the aid of his people by providing food for them, Naomi and her daughters-in-law prepared to return home from there. With her two daughters-in-law, she left the place where she had been living and set out on the road that would take them back to the land of Judah. Then Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go back, each of you, to your mother's home. May the Lord show kindness to you as you have shown to your dead and to me. May the Lord grant that each of you will find rest in the home of another husband. 
Then she kissed them, and they wept aloud and said, We will go back with you to your people. But Naomi said, Return home, my daughters. Why would you come with me? Am I going to have more sons who could become your husbands? Return home, my daughters. I'm too old to have another husband. Even if I thought there was still hope for me, even if I had a husband tonight and then gave birth to sons, would you wait until they grew up? Would you remain unmarried for them? No, my daughters. It's more bitter for me than for you because the Lord's hand has gone out against me. At this they wept again. Then Orpah kissed her mother-in-law goodbye, but Ruth clung to her. Look, said Naomi, your sister-in-law is going back to her people and her gods. Go back with them. But Ruth replied, don't urge me to leave you or turn back from you. Where you go, I will go, and where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if anything but death separates you and me. When Naomi realized that Ruth was determined to go with her, she stopped urging her. So the two women went on until they came to Bethlehem. When they arrived in Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them, and the women claimed, Can this be Naomi? Don't call me Naomi, she replied. Call me Mara. I'm from the south, so I'm going to say Mara. Call me Mara, because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? The Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. So Naomi returned from Moab, accompanied by Ruth the Moabitess, her daughter-in-law, arriving in Bethlehem as the barley harvest was beginning. There's your setup. Now Naomi had a relative on her husband's side from the clan of Elimelech, a man of standing whose name was Boaz. And Ruth the Moabitess said to Naomi, let me go to the fields and pick up the leftover grain behind anyone in whose eyes I find favor. She's asking, she's saying, I want to go glean in someone's field. We're poor. Let me go glean in someone's field. Naomi said to her, go ahead, my daughter. So she went out and began to glean in the fields behind the harvesters. As it turned out, she found herself working in a field belonging to Boaz, who was from the clan of Elimelech. Just then, Boaz arrived from Bethlehem and greeted the harvesters. The Lord be with you. The Lord bless you, they called back. Boaz asked the foreman of his harvesters, whose young woman is that? The foreman replied, she is the Moabitess who came back from Moab with Naomi. She said, please let me glean and gather among the sheaves behind the harvesters. She went to the field and has worked steadily from morning till now, except for a short rest in the shelter. So Boaz said to Ruth, my daughter, listen to me. Don't go and glean in another field and don't go away from here. Stay here with my servant girls. Watch the field where the men are harvesting and follow along after the girls. I've told the men not to touch you. And whenever you are thirsty, go and get a drink from the water jars the men have filled. You see there in that little uh, exchange the risk Ruth took in going to glean. At this, she bowed down with her face to the ground. She exclaimed, why have I found such favor in your eyes that you notice me, a foreigner? Boaz replied, I've been, I've been told all about what you've done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband. How you left your father and mother in your homeland and came to live with a people you did not know. May the Lord repay you for what you've done. May you be richly rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. May I continue to find favor in your eyes, my Lord, she said. You've given me comfort and have spoken kindly to your servant, though I do not have the standing of one of your servant girls. At mealtime, Boaz said to her, come over here, have some bread and dip it in the wine vinegar. When she sat down with the harvesters, he offered her some roasted grain. She ate all she wanted and had some left over. As she got up to glean, Boaz gave orders to his men, even if she gathers among the sheaves, don't embarrass her. Rather, pull out some stalks for her from the bundles and leave them for her to pick up. And don't rebuke her. Their Boaz is actually going beyond the requirements of the law. He didn't have to do that. So Ruth gleaned in the field until evening. Then she threshed the barley she had gathered, and it amounted to an ephah. I don't know how much. That's three-fifths of a bushel, which doesn't mean anything to me either. She carried it back to town, and her mother-in-law saw how much she had gathered. 
Ruth also brought out and gave her what she had left over after she had eaten enough. Her mother-in-law asked her, where did you glean today? Where did you work? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. Then Ruth told her mother-in-law about the one at whose place she'd been working. The name of the man I worked with today is Boaz, she said. The Lord bless him, Naomi said to her daughter-in-law. He's not, shop, not stopped showing his kindness to the living and the dead. She added, this man is our close relative. He is one of our kinsmen redeemers. Then Ruth the Moabite said, he even said to me, stay with my workers until they finish harvesting all my grain. Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, it'll be good for you, my daughter, to go with his girls because in someone else's field you might be harmed. So Ruth stayed close to the servant girls of Boaz to glean until the barley and wheat harvest were finished, and she lived with her mother-in-law. One day Naomi, her mother-in-law, said, Were my daughter, should I not try to find a home for you where you'll be well provided for? Is not Boaz, with whose servant girls you've been, a kinsman of ours? Tonight he will be winnowing barley on the threshing floor. Wash and perfume yourself and put on your best clothes. Then go down to the threshing floor. But don't let him know you're there until he has finished eating and drinking. When he lies down, note the place where he is lying. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down. He'll tell you what to do. Kind of what's going on there. This was a time of celebration. They'd done all the hard work. They'd already winnowed. They were down to the final bit here. The women were the sifters. So the men had pretty much done the work that they had to do. And so this was a time of celebration. And what Ruth is doing is a little bit uh, forward, actually. But we'll, you'll see how that works out. Uh, I will do whatever you say, Ruth answered. So she went down to the threshing floor and did everything her mother-in-law told her to do. When Boaz had finished eating and drinking and was in good spirits, he went over to lie down at the far end of the grain pile. Ruth approached quietly, uncovered his feet, and lay down. In the middle of the night, something startled the man, and he turned and discovered a woman lying at his feet. Who are you, he asked. I'm your servant, Ruth, she said. Spread the corner of your garment over me, since you are a kinsman redeemer. The Lord bless you, my daughter, he replied. This kindness is greater than that which you showed earlier. You've not run after the younger men, whether rich or poor. And now, my daughter, don't be afraid. I will do for you all you ask. All my fellow townsmen know that you're a woman of noble character. Although it's true that I'm near of kin, there's a kinsman redeemer nearer than I. Stay here for the night, and in the morning, if he wants to redeem good, let him redeem. But if he's not willing, as surely as the Lord lives, I will do it. Lie here until morning. So she lay at his feet until morning, but got up before anyone could be recognized. And he said, don't let it be known that a woman came to the threshing floor. He also said, bring me the shawl you're wearing and hold it out. When she did so, he poured it into six measures of barley and put it on her. Then he went back to town. When Ruth came to her mother-in-law, Naomi, how did it go, my daughter? Then she told him everything Boaz had done for her and added, he gave me these six measures of barley, saying, don't go back to your mother-in-law empty-handed. Then Naomi said, wait, my daughter, until you find out what happens, for the man will not rest until the matter is settled today. Meanwhile, Boaz went up to the town gate and sat there. When the kinsman redeemer he had mentioned came along, Boaz said, come over here, my friend, and sit down. So he went over and sat down. Boaz took ten of the elders of the town and said, sit here, and they did so. Then he said to the kinsman redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from Moab, is selling the piece of land that belonged to our brother Elimelech. I thought I could... I thought I should bring the matter to your attention and suggest that you buy it in the presence of those seated here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, do so. But if you will not, tell me, so I will know, for no one has the right to do it except you, and I'm next in line. I will redeem it, he said. Then Boaz said, On the day you buy the land from Naomi and from Ruth the Moabitess, you acquire the dead man's widow in order to maintain the name of the dead with his property. At this the kinsman redeemer said, Then I can't do it because I might endanger my own estate. You redeem it yourself. I cannot do it. Now, in earlier times in Israel, for the redemption and transfer of property to become final, one party took off his sandal and gave it to the other. This was the method of legalizing transactions in Israel. 
There you go. There's actually a place in Deuteronomy where if you don't do it, your family is called the family of the ungiven sandal or something like that. It's a <laughs> curse. You can look it up. So the kinsman redeemer said to Boaz, buy it yourself. And he removed his sandal. Then Boaz announced to the elders and all the people, Today you are witnesses that I have bought from Naomi all the property of Elimelech, Kilian, and Malon. I have also acquired Ruth the Moabitess, Malon's widow, as my wife, in order to maintain the name of the dead with his property, so that his name will not disappear from among his family or from the town records. Today you are witnesses. Then the elders and all those at the gate said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your home like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you have standing in a in Ephrathah and be famous in Bethlehem. Through the, through the offspring the Lord gives you by this young woman, may your family be like that of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah. So Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife. Then he went to her and the Lord enabled her to conceive and she gave birth to a son. The women said to Naomi, Praise be to the Lord who this day has not left you without a kinsman redeemer. May he become famous throughout Israel. He will renew your life and sustain you in old age for your daughter-in-law who loves you and is better to you than seven sons has given him birth. Then Naomi took the child and laid him in her lap and cared for him. That means she adopted him. The women, the women living there said, Naomi has a son. And they named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. This then is the family line of Perez. Perez was the father of Hezron. Hezron the father of Ram. Ram the father of Amminadab. Amminadab the father of Nashon. Nashon, the father of Salmon. Salmon, the father of Boaz. Boaz, the father of Obed. Obed, the father of Jesse. And Jesse, the father of David. A couple of things I want to point out, just some brief observations. The story, the book is called Ruth. It's about Naomi. The story is about Naomi's redemption. You can trace it. She, it's bracketed. The story begins and ends. It's almost perfectly symmetrical. I think it's the same number of words, like 71 words tell Naomi's story at the beginning, and then tell her story at the end. And you can kind of see the arc of her life. She starts off as Naomi, which means pleasant. She's married. She has two sons. That means she's blessed. She has two boys. There's a famine in Israel, but she's still considered blessed because of her family. Then within a span of 10 years, she loses everything. Her husband dies and both of her boys, which imagine that. And she goes from being Naomi to being, in my world, Mara, which means bitter. She goes from pleasant to bitter, and then at the end of the story, she's Naomi, she's pleasant again. That arc from pleasant to bitter to pleasant is really the theme of this story. And what I want us to know is everybody is Mara at some point. You have been. You might be today. You might say, "I'm, I'm bitter today. Everybody has been bitter at some point or will be bitter at some point, as we think about the vision of this church to see our community transformed, and as we look maybe towards the fall and the opportunities that Alpha particularly provides for us to really connect with people and impact them eternally, recognize that there are mayras in your life. There are people who are bitter. Now, whether or not they would say, the Lord has done this to me like Naomi said or not, that really is irrelevant. The, the cause of the bad things is not nearly as important as the fact that someone is saying, this is where I am. I'm, I'm bitter. Not, I'm bitter because everything has been taken away from me. So that's the first thing I want you to know is that there are mayras in your life and we need to look out for them. Second, Naomi's redemption is aided or facilitated by Ruth. Without Ruth, Naomi's done. She says herself, I'm too old to get married again. She can't have kids. That's why she's too old to get married again. She can't have kids. So basically, nobody wants her. If you can't, 
produce, for lack of a better word, you're not going to get married. Because that's one of the major reasons folks got married, was to have children to pass on their, to continue their family line. That's why this whole thing is so devastating. We don't really get that. But for Naomi, um, she's in a, in a Limelech's family now. That's what she's married into his family. So that is her primary identification, not the parents she was born to. It's a Limelech and his family. Inheritance passed through boys. Hers are dead. So she's got no heirs. When she dies, they're done. Like, Elimelech's name gets a line through it in the book because there's nobody to carry on his family name, which we're like, well, that's not that big a deal, is it? It was huge for them. Uh, God owned the land, and he just kind of leased it to all of these different families and clans. You can read in Joshua how he distributes all this land. It's really boring, but you can go through and read it. And he says, this is who gets what. And when a family died, that meant their family was disinherited. They weren't. They didn't see themselves as God's people anymore because there was nobody who was still uh, living on their inheritance from the Lord that he'd given them. So this is a huge deal for her. Without Ruth, she's finished. The best she can hope for is to hold on to her land till she dies, which I don't think she could have because she couldn't work. So she couldn't have afforded it anyway. So she was done. She had had to sell her land in order to buy food. And that would be it for her family. Apart from Ruth's devotion. It's interesting to me that the words, y'all probably the only part of Ruth that we all recognize was that little chunk in chapter one that sometimes husbands and wives say to each other. Some of you who married, maybe you use that in your wedding vows, kind of where you go, I will go, that whole deal. It's interesting to me that we say that to our spouse. Ruth said it to her mother-in-law. The words of devotion that we say, this is it, this is how I'm going to relate to my wife or husband forever and ever, all of that stuff. Ruth says those to her mother-in-law, who has nothing to give her. And Naomi says that. I've got nothing for you, Ruth. If I was pregnant right now, would you really wait 30 years for this boy to get old enough to marry you? She's got nothing to offer. And yet you see this selfless devotion in Ruth. The first thing I wanted to say was everybody is Mera at some point in their life. The second thing is everybody can be a Ruth. Ruth sounds like the Hebrew word for friend. Everybody can be a Ruth. For those of you who can remember the time when you were Mera, it most likely was a Ruth that helped pull you through that. Most of us don't get through it on our own. We talked about communion and said that's a, that's a means of grace. That's an avenue of God's grace, a way that he works in our life. Another huge one is through other people. I would say, I don't have stats, the overwhelming majority of the things that God does in our life, he does through other people. Very rarely will God work in your life apart from the work of somebody else who loves you and loves him. And we all have the opportunity to be a Ruth. Everybody will be Mara. Everybody can be Ruth. And you don't have to be a stud to be Ruth. The, the key to being Ruth is to love Mara. That's it. Ruth didn't have some grand strategic plan for how she was going to get Naomi out of financial chaos. All she knew was she loved Naomi and she was committed to to being with her and doing her best to help her however she could. And at that point, it was, let me go glean in a field. That's all she had. Let me go glean in a field. All of us, we can all glean in a field. That's not, we can do that. If we're willing to love Mara, then we can see what happened in Mara's life. We can see them become 
Naomi's again. It's easy to invite somebody to Alpha. You invite people to stuff all the time. This is just another thing to invite them to. Worst thing that happens is they say no. People say no to you all the time. You're still here. It didn't crush you to the point you come up, you can't come outside anymore. It's okay. You don't have to invite them to Alpha, but that's an easy thing to do. That's something that we can provide that hopefully will help people. Everybody can be a Ruth. This is actually one of the areas for our, I think this is our one-year deal. This In our second year, this is an area I would really like to see us grow in. I think we've done a good job as a church. This is this is kind of for the home church guys here. I think we've done a good job at laying a foundation kind of for who we are and we've kind of, you know, things kind of work. The lights are on and we kind of know what we're doing. We, we have a, a foundation here. And the place that I really want to see us grow next year is really stepping more into the role of Ruth and being friends with Mayras, looking for opportunities to really do relational ministry. Service is awesome. We've got to have it. People, we have got to have folks who serve, and that is wonderful, and I don't want to drop that down a notch at all. What I'm saying is, in addition to the serving, what I want to see this next year is us stepping up in this area of relational ministry, really looking for opportunities to be Ruth's. We say we want to connect with the heart of Marietta. Well, those are people, and so that's us being willing to connect with other people, and that might be scary. You don't have time for that. You don't know how to do it. Whatever. You can... You can glean in a field. That's not that difficult. You can love a Mayra. Last thing. Boaz, in this story, really plays the role of um, Jesus. A kinsman redeemer. In, in the Old Testament, God set up these provisions for families if they got in trouble. And a lot of the, these provisions ran through this role called a kinsman redeemer. That wasn't a person... It was a role, and it depended on how close you were to who died. And, and what Boaz, they, they had about four different responsibilities, and it could be different people who played them. But Boaz picked up two of the responsibilities of the kinsman redeemer. That meant he was, he was closest to this Elimelech's extended family after this one guy who said no. And he had two responsibilities that he picked up. One was redeeming the land. You can see that. I think it's Leviticus 25 talks about the responsibility of a kinsman redeemer to redeem the land. For his family. That's what we talked about earlier. Um, people, their inheritance from the Lord was tied to their family plot of land. And you couldn't lose that. I mean, it was, so, it was such a big deal. Every 50 years, God said, you've got to give it all back. If you're poor and you sell your land and you're poor and you sell yours and you're poor and you sell yours, every 50 years, you all get it back for free. That's how important the land was in terms of the family connection and people really realizing that they were children of God. And so that was one of his jobs, and anybody would do that. Sure, I'll redeem the land, because that means you get the, the proceeds of the harvest on that land. That land is farmed. If it's your land, you, you own it. You own the harvest for until this year of Jubilee when everything got set back. That's a good business decision. Of course the guy's going to say, yeah, I'll redeem the land. The second part is a little trickier. That's the Mary, the widow part of the equation. In Israel, this is funky to us, but this is what happened. I've got a brother. I'm married to um, Misty. Misty and I are married. I die, and we don't have any sons. My brother, Micah, is then has a responsibility to marry Misty, his sister-in-law. And the first son they have is actually my son. It, it's a replacement, kind of in quotes. And that son would then carry on my name, not Micah's name. You get that? So 
Micah could refuse it, and then he's the family of the one who won't give his sandal thing. That's the curse. I'm telling you, it, I wish I, if somebody could find that, that would be awesome so I can give you the exact quote. It's all in capital letters, actually. It was an official designation of a curse on people who would not honor their family obligations. So anyway, that's what you have going on. That's called leveret, uh, I think is how you say it, marriage, where the my brother would be responsible to carry on my family name if I didn't have a son. And the reason this kinsman redeemer, this other one who is unnamed, says, man, I can't do that, would be, let's say, I don't have a son. Micah marries Misty, and they have a son. But Micah and his wife, her name's Shireen, Micah and Shireen don't have a son. Then the one he's had with Misty gets his stuff also. So there's a huge risk involved in honoring these obligations. Micah's family could wind up getting hurt in the end. He's taking a big risk because in marrying Misty and having a son that's carrying on my name, if he doesn't have one by his own wife, well, then he's in the same situation she was in, where his name is not being carried on. So it's a big deal. It's not like, okay, I, you know, another wife, yay, that's great. It's, no, there's a huge risk involved, and Boaz was willing to take it. So that's all that stuff about kinsman redeemer. What I want you to see in that is Boaz didn't just want the land. He wanted the relationship with Ruth. And Jesus is the same way. We talk a lot about being redeemed. And sometimes that can make you maybe feel like a commodity. Like you're this thing and Jesus redeemed you. There's this whole pack of people and you're part of the pack and Jesus redeems you as a pack. And that's true. You were redeemed. But he also wants the relationship. I would say the reason he redeems you is because he wants the relationship. And you've got to get that. The picture of Boaz and Ruth, the, the affection that you hear in Boaz's voice for Ruth should excite you. That's a picture of Jesus' affection toward you. That can be hard for us guys. Don't let the gender thing confuse you. That's his desire. He's not just looking to redeem you like you redeem a piece of land to see if you can... Oh, yeah, the family of the unsandaled. There you go. You don't want that curse. Um, God is not just looking to redeem you as a piece of property to see if you can be productive until you die. How much fruit can you produce until you die? That's not what he's about. That's great. Fruit, yeah, all that's awesome. What he wants is this relationship with you, primarily. The fruit stuff is all gravy as far as he's concerned. And you need and I need to get that. Read Ruth ten times this week if you need to to get that the way Boaz, Boaz's attitude toward Ruth parallels Jesus' attitude towards you. That is his desire. He doesn't just want to redeem you to see what you can do for him. He, he went great personal costs because he wants to be in relationship with you. This is my last observation. God is always at work. This is the best line in the whole book. 2-3. As it turned out, Ruth found herself working in a field belonging to Boaz, who was from the clan of Elimelech. As it turned out. Just so happens that Ruth winds up in a field that's owned by Boaz. If you'll be willing to be a Ruth to a Merah, 
If you'll be willing to say, you know what, I'm, I'm in here with you. You don't have to pledge life and love forever like Ruth did. But if you're willing to say, you know what, I'm with you. You're not just a project. We're friends and I'm here with you, Mayra. If you'll be willing to do that, God will set things up so Mayra can meet Boaz. You won't have to do that. God is always at work. One of the greatest truths in Christianity, it's called, the, it's called providence, which means there are no accidents. God is always at work. If you believe in an all-knowing, all-powerful, all-loving God, I'm not sure how you get coincidence into that. If you believe in an all-knowing, all-loving, all-powerful God who runs the universe, then there aren't room, there's no room for coincidence. God's always orchestrating things to accomplish his purposes. He never violates our will. We have to say yes to him. That was kind of what we were doing during worship. We were trying to say yes to what God wanted to accomplish. We have to say yes. If we're saying no, he's not going to force us. But he's always orchestrating. And we might say no 29 times, and he's there the 30th, still trying to work things out. And he's going to work until he's done to accomplish his purposes. And so you'll find yourself, Ruth, in these relationships with Amira, and you're going to say, they're going to say to you, we know as it turned out, fill in the blank, and you're going to say, that's the Lord. That's the Lord. So as we head into the fall, that would be my encouragement for you. Look for an opportunity to be a Ruth to Amira. They're in your life. It might be someone you're in your family. It might be someone you work with, a coworker, someone you're not going to meet till tomorrow. Look for Amira. Be Ruth. If you'll be Ruth, you'll set it up, and God will introduce her to Boaz. And it'll be an opportunity for Mayra to become Naomi again. Let's pray.